If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 today. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to look underneath the seat in front of you or near you. There should be a a, a Bible there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take that home so that you can study God's Word and learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and what He has done for sinners. Just consider that a gift from us to you for you being here today. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers, the small numbers are verse numbers should be somewhere around page 553 uh, that you should find the book of Ecclesiastes, and then you just thumb over to the large number 11. We've been in a series of sermons studying the book of Ecclesiastes. We're coming to the the end of his writing for us. The uh, preacher has been summing up wisdom for us as he's been on this pursuit of gain and profit and benefit, and we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But today, we're going to turn our attention specifically to his writing to us in chapter 11, verse 1. And if you're the kind of person who likes to write in your Bible, underline every time you see the phrase, you do not know. The preacher writes the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Father, as the Apostle Peter exhorts us, we pray that you would help us to prepare our minds right now in this moment to hear your word, that we would be sober-minded, focused, that even now in this moment, we would be setting our hope fully on the grace brought to us at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us in this moment to be able to understand your word, to be able to grow in conformity with Christ if we call ourselves a Christian. And for those who are not here, God, we pray that you would do what we read about in both Ezekiel 37 and in John chapter 3, that you would do the good work of regenerating the dead heart. Lord, that you would cause people who are dead to live by your spirit. Father, that you would give them eyes to see the beauty and truth of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, for all who are already believers, we all ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word, to be able to look more like our Lord Christ when we leave this place because of reading your word and growing in understanding of your word. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In the 2013 movie About Time, Tim Lake grows up in Cornwall in a house by the sea with his family and learns from his father James on his 21st birthday that the men of their family have a secret ability. They have the ability 
to travel back in time to moments that they have already lived before and relive them. James discourages his son from using this special power to be able to acquire more money, more fame, telling him of all of the family members who've gone before him who have tried to do that and just ruined their lives. So Tim decides that he will use this gift to improve his love life. The following summer, his sister's friend, Charlotte, visits. Tim is instantly smitten with Charlotte, but waits until the end of first day to tell her how he feels. And she tells him that he should have told her earlier in the summer. So Tim goes, moves himself back in time, comes and finds Charlotte, and he lets her know of her affections. And she says, why don't you tell me on the last night of my time here? Heartbroken, Tim realizes that she's uninterested in him and that even the ability to go back in time cannot change someone else's mind. Later, Tim moves to London. He pursues a career uh, as a lawyer, living with his father's acquaintance, Harry, an angry, misanthropic playwright. And while there, Tim visits a restaurant where he meets Mary. They talk, they exchange information, they eventually start a relationship right before Tim encounters Charlotte again on the streets of London, who all of a sudden is interested in him. And at the end of the day, Tim is faced with an important question Because though he can travel back in time, he's already learned that he cannot control time. Will he enter a relationship with Charlotte while keeping the door of the past open in case things go south? Or will he stay true to Mary because of the potential of a future before him that he cannot control? As we turn our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been reminding ourselves time and time again that the preacher has been on a quest. From chapter 1, verse 3, and we see it again in chapter 2, verse 22, and then again in chapter 3, verse 9, that the preacher is seeking to profit, to benefit, to gain in this life. And he's been looking for that profit, for that benefit, for that gain, that opportunity to advantage everywhere in his life, but he has bottomed it out over and over and over again. To the point where now at the end of the book, in these final chapters, in these verses that we're looking at now, the preacher begins to realize that he cannot control his circumstances, that he could be the most knowledgeable man and still not gain. He could experience all the world has to offer and never be happy. He can be somebody who knows more than anyone else, wiser than anyone who's been before him and still have no satisfaction in this life. In fact, he simply just cannot control his circumstances around him. And as he wrestles with this, before he brings us to the end of his book, the preacher is telling us, even in this poetic language, that though we can come to a place of understanding and look backward and maybe fear forward, there's something about the way that we need to live in light of who God is and how he has placed us in the world, not with regret and not with fear. Notice first, in verses 1 and 2, give. Look with me again in verses one through two. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In verses one through two, the preacher introduces the strange image of waterlogged bread and giving portions to seven and eight in these rather cryptic verses that have as many opinions about them as there are preachers and commentators. But I think that the key to the entire section that opens up each verse is found in verse 6. Look there with me. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, 
this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We simply do not know what God is going to do in the future, a theme that the preacher has brought to our attention again in chapter 10, verse 14. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? And the reality of not knowing forces us to ask, how then should we live now? A question that helps us reconsider what the preacher is actually trying to teach us in verses one through two. With that question and that framing in our minds, we find a clue in the verbs in verse one, cast or literally send out your bread, and verse two, give. We have bread and we're told to send it out. And we have portions and we're told to give them to seven and then to eight. Numbers have significance in the scripture. In the Bible, seven is a number of perfection, and so giving to seven and then to eight is giving completely and then a little bit more. The preacher is saying, give. And when you give, give generously. Do not withhold, do not close your hand, give freely of all that you have. At this point, whether the preacher is talking about business or commerce, like sea trade or work that happens, maritime work, whether he's simply speaking about life in general, the idea is that because the future is uncertain, risk is always involved in what we do, but that risk is not meant to paralyze us in the present. Rather, it is meant to free us so that we live generously because we do not know what is before us. Jesus himself shows us the kind of wisdom that the preacher is speaking of here by giving us a graphic picture of the type of person who does not understand this wisdom. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we find Jesus telling a parable. In that parable, he tells us about a rich man. Luke 12, verse 16, Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, Jesus helps us to see that the person who does not give generously of life's possessions is a fool. One of the greatest mistakes that we can make is to think about our life, our wealth, our possessions, our education, our opportunity, what we have materially, as if we can predict the future. You can't, says Jesus. So be rich toward God now while you can. What's the point of your life, your wealth, your possessions, of all of the opportunities that you have if disaster strikes next week and takes them all from you? Because verse two, we know not what disaster may happen on earth. We must be prepared as we can be for that by giving freely of what we have today. 
The preacher of Ecclesiastes is talking about wise generosity that takes action for the sake of others. David Gibson highlights how this idea receives beautiful development in the life of Jesus himself. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. This is the back-to-front logic of being in Christ's kingdom. The way up to glory is the way down into suffering. The way to actually find something is to lose everything. The way to get something is to give freely, Jesus said. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the greatest wisdom teacher ever, not simply because he repeats Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Psalms, but because Jesus himself perfectly embodied wisdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth to die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' own death was the ultimate giving away of life, which gave life to others. Throughout his life, Jesus took action for us. Brothers and sisters, that is why we gather on Sundays. He took action by taking on human nature, by obeying all of the demands of the law and fulfilling all righteousness, by offering himself up freely as a substitute for the people that he so loved, by rising from the dead after three days because he could not be held by death, by ascending into heaven, and even now he takes action for us by interceding for us. Jesus took action for the people that he so loved, and he gave generously of all that he had and of everything that he was so that we might know, so that you might know the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and fellowship with one another so that you might have union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, these are the great gospel promises, and they are the very reason that we gather together on Sundays because of these truths. Union with Christ is what gives us hope. Our union with Christ is what gives us confidence. This is why the apostle Paul tells us, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I wonder if you know that Jesus Christ gave himself up for you. You might have wandered in here today because you know that people are supposed to go to church on a Sunday, or you feel that it's the right thing to do, or you simply think that it'll make you a better person, and we're here to tell you that we're glad that you're here, but coming to church doesn't make anybody better. We come to the church to remind ourselves of the gospel that we all needed to save us and so desperately need right now to continue to save us as we press ever deeper into repentance and faith. Repentance is something that you'll hear us talk a lot about here. Turning away from sin and turning to Christ. If you've never turned to Christ, the Bible says that you must turn to him in faith, asking God to make his life your life, and his death your death, and his resurrection your resurrection, and asking him to forgive you of all of your sins. And here's the sweet promise. He will forgive you of your sins if you ask him. But believer, as we remind people who are not Christians of that here today, I wonder if you're reminding yourself of that same thing, that God will forgive you of your sins if you ask him to forgive you of your sins. It is not uncommon for me to meet believers who feel that they have sinned their way out of the grace of God 
or somehow that they have sinned themselves into a position where they need to do something before their God will find them acceptable again. But brothers and sisters, there is no gospel in that. That is penance, and there is no hope in that. The gospel tells us to come freely and cast all of our sins upon the Lord, and it promises us that every single time we turn to him in repentance, turning away from sin and turning to Jesus in faith, we will be met with forgiveness. You will be met with forgiveness. You will be met with forgiveness. You will be delivered by mercy. Your sins will be washed away, and you will be given hope of everlasting life. Friends, Jesus gave himself willingly, and his own death was the ultimate giving away of life to give it to others, and it is the pattern for our life. You see, when we read the Gospels, sometimes as Protestants, we are so focused on justification, and we should be, that we forget that the Gospels also give us Jesus as a moral example. He is much more than an example. But he is also our example. He paves a pattern for us of how to live this life. So John says, whoever loves his life and who loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here is wisdom that you will not hear anywhere else except a Bible preaching church. Take the best of all that you have and give it away for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Now, as I've tried to think of what I mean by that this week for you, here are a few things that I think I mean. First, be generous with your time for the sake of others as we pray for and labor for a culture of discipling in our church. For some of you, that means you will have to inconvenience yourself and your family and your schedule to do spiritual good to other members of this church Because the burden of discipleship is not solely mine or merely the responsibility of the elders, though we bear it in a unique way as the pastors of this church. Every single member of this church is to help bear the burden of discipleship here at Christ Church Westchester, which means you never have to ask for permission to disciple somebody else or to do spiritual good to somebody else. For others of you, that means that you have to inconvenience yourself and your family and your schedule to be a recipient of the spiritual good others are seeking to do to you as members of this church. Because no member of this church, including all of the pastors, has arrived and no longer needs the spiritual good that comes from other members or congregational care. So how do you put yourself in a position to receive spiritual good? Well, I'm glad that you asked. A few things come to mind. Arrive early on Sundays. Do not be late for corporate worship. The prep song is not merely a buffer so that you can arrive late. The prep song is meant for us to prepare for congregational worship. And you can't fellowship with other people when we're saying, go into the sanctuary because we prioritize the preaching of God's word. Arrive early. You are not the first person who ever had to wake up early. You will not be the last person who ever had to wake up early. You are not the only person who has a difficult time getting here early. Everybody here said this morning, you know, it was really hard to get here early today. Everybody. Arrive early. Stay late on Sundays. 
Do not just come to corporate worship and run out of the building because you have better things to do. One of the reasons that we ask our deacons to wait an hour, literally at least an hour, before they lock the building and suggest to you to leave, sometimes forcefully, sometimes by suggestion, is because we want to provide space for you to be together so that you can do spiritual good to one another, encouraging one another, praying with one another, laughing with one another, reminding one another of the truth of the gospel. You will never be invested in the lives of other people if you walk in here late and leave as quickly as possible on Sunday mornings. You can know nothing about one another if you don't spend any time together, and we are aware that your schedules take you in completely different directions. So this service is one of the things you must prioritize in your life to be invested in the lives of other people. Use your afternoons on Sunday to meet with other members. Everybody in this church is busy. I've never met another person who says, I'm no longer busy. I have complete free time in my schedule. Use your afternoons to do spiritual good to other people in this church. There are other things that you want to do. There are other things that they want to do. Do them together so that you can do spiritual good to one another. And sometimes that is as simple as talking to one another while you run. And if you're the type of person who can't talk while running, find the person who can talk while running and then run with them and let them talk. Be with them and spend time together with one another. Stop turning down invitations of other members to spend time with one another. It is self-defeating and it invites loneliness. Why don't you spend time with anybody? Because you turn down everybody who tries to spend time with you. There is no way for you to grow in friendship with other people if you never spend time with one another. Read your directory and learn the names of other people because one of the most important things that you can do is call somebody by their name and ask them how they're doing. Their name matters. We've given you that, not simply because you're forgetful, though some of you are, but so that you might be able to call them by name and address them by name. What else can you do when you're together? Get the sermon card, read the Bible passage that we're preaching on a Sunday morning, sit down and ask one another, what do you think the pastor's gonna say? You'll probably come with some conclusions. You probably will not know what we're gonna say entirely and then go talk about it afterwards. One of our life groups, their group is actually getting together, looking at the passage before Sunday morning and then they're trying to use the skills that we're teaching people at verse by verse on Wednesday night, just simple, basic observation, interpretation and application to prepare for Sunday morning. You can get with people and you can do that as well. You can read a good Christian book together. If you don't know what Christian book to get, Go to the Connection Center. We have literally set out Christian books for you to be able to read with one another. There are chapters that we've been saying, do you want to understand the Bible better? Grab one of those chapters, read it with somebody else, and ask them to help you understand what it means. Very simply, spend time together and share life together. People will ask, what do I do? I've never been in a discipleship relationship. And so often, discipling is literally just being around one another and asking one another in all of the moments that you're around one another, how do we apply the gospel now? None of this is groundbreaking. Probably all of this you have heard before. And I am empowering you. The elders are empowering you. Do this with one another. We need your help to minister to the other people here in this church. And if you are not a member of this church, We invite you to join it and to help us carry out that mission of doing spiritual good to one another. Second, that was one. Second, 
Be generous with your time for the salvation of others in our community as we pray for and labor for a culture of evangelism in our church. For some of you, that means open your homes to hospitality and invite unbelievers. And if you are concerned that unbelievers are not gonna connect well with you, invite other members of your church so that they can connect with those unbelievers. You can invite several people over at one time and network them together. For others of you, that means you might start taking your lunch break on campus because there are literally thousands of college students who have moved back to the borough who need the gospel. And if you can't go there for lunch, go there for dinner. And if you can't go there for dinner, go there for breakfast. And if you can't go there for any of those, go take coffee there. And if you can't do any of that, go walk there because they are literally everywhere all the time. And they will be sent all over the world. For still others of you, it might literally be as simple as going home and looking around where you live and seeing if you can name all of your neighbors. And if you cannot name all of your neighbors and say something meaningful about their life, then you need to get to know your neighbors. And if you don't know how to get involved in their life, knock on the door. And if you don't like knocking on the door, there's lots of very extroverted people here. Ask them to come with you and then they'll knock on the door for you. But get to know your neighbors and help us as we pray for and labor for a culture of evangelism together to cast or to send out or to give like the preacher is calling us to do, costs. You will know that you are doing it right if it costs you. And the way to begin to find out if it costs you is to begin to think about what is it in my life that I feel that I cannot live without and then give that, whether it is time or money or service for the good of other people. And if that sounds dramatic, It is because we have learned to believe the wisdom of this world more than we've learned to believe the wisdom of the Bible. First, give. Second, live. Look in verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The preacher says that there is an inevitability to life. If the clouds are full of rain, they pour themselves upon the earth. But there's also a randomness to the events of life. A tree falls down in the forest, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Some people only see the inevitability of life. This is just the way things are. And some of us tend to see only the randomness of life, so we're paralyzed by it. But it seems that the preacher is prodding us with one of his main messages throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, is that there are things that are worse than inevitability and randomness in life, and that is failing to live life in the first place. As those I played softball with learned at the end of our season together, that one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. It is a powerful story of love and revenge, of friendship and courage, of justice and overcoming. I've probably seen the movie about 50 times. I used to listen to it for background noise when I was in college for no other reason than I just loved the movie. Near the end of the film, William Wallace is preparing to face his executioners and is offered an anesthetic by Princess Isabella of France to numb the pain that is imminent, and he refuses it. She says... You will die, it will be awful. To which he replies, every man dies. Not every man really lives. I wonder what difference it would make to your life 
if you believed that there were things that are worse than dying? What difference would it make if we really believed that it is worse to live in God's world in a way that is not really living at all? In verses three through four, the preacher brings together the things that we can do nothing about and those things that call for action. And he gives us two examples. The clouds which follow their own times and laws and fallen trees which have consulted no one's convenience and forces us to begin to think of maybes and might have beens, but our business, according to the preacher, is to grapple with what actually is in our life. Few great enterprises have waited for ideal conditions. Why are we waiting around? It will always be hard to live the Christian life. It will be, always be difficult to do great or meaningful things for God. And great and meaningful things are not necessarily well-known things or popular things or things that get you on the front page or things that make you remembered or things that go on your tombstone. Great and meaningful and eternal things are simply the stuff of the Christian life. A life that shelters itself from action because it has space only for the predictable is a living death. And that is not being alive at all. The preacher has learned from the beginning that life is gift, not gain. What can I gain in this life? What can I gain in this life? What can I gain in this life? I can't control anything. Life is gift. And now he encourages us once he realizes everything is gift. Every opportunity to learn, every experience of pleasure, every relationship you've ever had, every moment of your life, all of it is gift. And instead of seeking more profit and more gain and more benefit, he says we are to give freely of what we have. Brothers and sisters, if what you seek to do is to control your life and to map out your life and to insulate yourself from risk, you have forgotten what is a simple principle in the Bible and the wisdom literature helps us see that you are not in control of life any more than you are in control of rain and fallen trees. Let me ask you, do you affirm that God is in control? That is, even as a member, you can read our statement of faith, but you live as if life is out of control. Do you say that God is sovereign, but then seek to control your life apart from his sovereign will? Are you so pessimistic about what seems inevitable and random that you are doing nothing for the kingdom of God right now because you are more concerned about protecting yourself? Have you been so focused on the maybes and the might have beens that you have not grappled with what has actually been given to you in this life and is within your reach? There are spheres of influence that all of us have that other people don't have. Those are the ones that are entrusted to you for the sake of the kingdom but we bypass them. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough fill in the blank. But those are the things that God has given to you to do. Brothers and sisters, live and fill your life with these things that God has given you to do and do them for the kingdom. As Jesus reminds us, treasure in heaven is stored up now by obedience to God in all areas of our life 
right now. As we'll see, the unknown and the unknowable are not meant to paralyze us. Give, live, and effort. I couldn't find another word that rhymed. Verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The preacher relates the realm of the unknown and the unknowable, verse 5, to God who makes everything. And the example that he has chosen is one of God's crowning works, one that gives all of our questioning and thinking deep focus. It requires us to pay attention as we think of the marvel of the human body and the human spirit. Verse 5, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. None of us understands what God does in his world. None of us has any control over it. Not here in this congregation, not someone leading in this nation, not someone leading in another nation. No one is sovereign and rules over all. That is the preacher's point. Whether predictable or unpredictable, the point is that mortal people cannot control anything, which is exactly what Nicodemus learned on the night that he spoke with Jesus that we read about earlier. I want you to hear these words again, or feel free to turn there with me now to John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He came at night. Now, remember, he's not associating with Jesus in the day because he does not want people to see that he is with Jesus. So he hides himself by coming at night. For we know that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Probably thinking himself profound. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The image Jesus paints here is one, if you're driving through the Midwest, driving through Illinois like I was a few years ago, and you see all of those great wind farms, but none of the turbines are turning. You can set them up because of what you think is going to happen, but what you cannot control is the wind actually blowing in that place to turn the turbines. That's what it's like with the Spirit. Like the preacher, Jesus highlights that the Spirit is hidden. He is free from our control, but he is present nonetheless. The preacher says, in all the works of mankind, there are certain things that only God knows. There are things that only God can control. Like the day that you came to faith in Christ, sitting in a service just like this, hearing a message probably not dissimilar about an invitation of repentance and faith, and you believed, but someone else who was there did not. 
Why is it that your eyes were opened and your ears were able to hear and you turned to Christ, but this other person who is also educated and heard everything that you heard did not believe? The Spirit blows where he wishes. He opened your eyes to see what you had never seen before, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of sins forgiven and the reality that you could be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another and an inheritor of all things in Christ and be transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it was beautiful to you and you came to it. And someone else saw it and they turned away and they went home. That's what it's like with the spirit. You can't control that just like you can't control a great many other things in your life. The preacher says an idea that is powerfully expressed also in the book of Job. Job chapter 38. I'll just read a couple verses. Verses 12, 19, and 20, and 35. If you, don't, if you have time, go home this afternoon and read the end of Job. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? The answer, no. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? The answer, I don't know. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? The answer again, no. The effect of those and all of the other rhetorical questions for Job is that he realizes by every time answering, I don't know, no, I cannot, that the answer alone is God knows and God alone can do that. By taking Job to the edge of the world and heavens and exposing his bankruptcy, what we see is that he begins to realize that there is a limit to human knowledge. And he begins to see in part that there is this deep breadth to divine knowledge. God rules over all. God knows all kinds of things that you will never know, that you're not meant to know. God alone is the sovereign one who rules over all things that take place. And that forces Job to realize what God is saying without saying it. If you don't know and can't change it, then who are you to charge me when I know and I can change it? You have no idea what you're talking about. When you complain to God about all of the circumstances in your life and the unfairness and why someone else got what you feel like you deserved or how things should be different for you than they are, who are you? You don't know and you can't see. God alone knows. God alone sees, and in ways, brothers and sisters, especially for those of you who have suffered greatly in this life, we're not here paving over your suffering. In fact, I would love to hear more about your suffering. All of our elders would. We don't long for you to suffer, and we are sad that you have, but in ways that you would have never chosen for yourself, through circumstances that you would have never planned, God has chosen to use all of this life to help you see more clearly what you would not see otherwise, the beauty of the gospel, the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of a new world that's better than this world, the blessing of friendship, the camaraderie that takes place in the context of a local church. Some of you have been hurt by churches and you hear us invite people to join a church. We wanna say that we're sorry that churches have hurt you. And we're not a perfect church, and I'm not a perfect pastor, and none of our elders are perfect either. But we long for you to be here with other imperfect people 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we'd love to help you. And we'd love to listen to you. And we say that sincerely. Perhaps no one has ever really listened to you. We'd love to listen to you. We'd love to pray with you. And our answer might be like Job's. We don't know. And we can't change that. But here's Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, and the one who loves you more than you could have ever imagined and hoped. There's a certain kind of control the preacher is telling us that we don't have in this world. And as he's telling us about it, he's calling us to surrender it and to take comfort in what we do not know so that we can learn to make effort nonetheless. Look at verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. In that evening, withhold not your hand. So from the beginning of day to the end of the day, put forth effort. For you do not know. For, that's a reason word. All right, well, the reason I'm doing this, it probably means nothing to you, but I'm thinking that's what I would circle at verse by verse on the board. All right, so I'm not just waving my hand like, you know, in Harry Potter making something float. All right, but for, there's a reason word. Pay attention to words like that. You do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both or like will be good. But because you don't know, that doesn't mean do nothing. The true response to uncertainty for the preacher is this redoubling effort. Make the most of the time, the apostle Paul says. Be urgent in season and out of season, expresses one of the preachers of scripture. We are to be like the farmer who's hard at work from the beginning of the day to the end of the day so that we might reap a spiritual harvest because we don't know when God will give us the opportunity to pick fruit or to bear fruit or to sow seed. So we're just to be faithful in all of the areas of our life. If you've ever been frustrated and you're thinking, I've shared the gospel and nobody's come to faith in Christ, do not be discouraged. Please, as one of your pastors, hear me say, keep sharing the gospel because someone else, God willing, will come and bear that fruit. And if you're the kind of person who people just come to Christ every time you open your mouth, thank you so much. Please know that other people have sowed seed before you and feel no pride in your effort. Brothers and sisters, we're to labor side by side, sowing seed, not knowing how God will prosper our work. Together, in a local church made up of currently 109 members, building one another up, laboring together. You want to see more happen in Westchester? Help us do it. Help us labor for our community and for all of the surrounding communities because you don't know what will prosper this or that. Start that evangelistic Bible study. Finally speak to that neighbor. Confront that friend about their sin. Finally ask somebody to hold you accountable and mean it. Do whatever it takes in those moments, working from the beginning of the day to the end of the day because you don't know what God is going to prosper or how. It's a stimulating call. The very smallness of our knowledge and the lack of our ability to control becomes the very thing that the preacher throws and impresses upon us to become the reason to stir us up into action. So don't become despondent. He says, take action. Remember this, says the Apostle Paul, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Because Matthew's gospel teaches us Jesus is particularly opposed to defensive living. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus is opposed to this defensive living. Verse 14. 
For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. We need to pay attention to that. To each one according to his ability. Your ability is probably different than somebody else's ability, and that's okay. It's still ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house, a master of those servants, came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. Now notice the master says the same thing to this guy, even though he only operated with two talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over the same. Not over a little. You had a little, so you get a little. He had much, he gets much. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice his lack of action says something about his spiritual state. He refused to work for the kingdom. The parable is not about money. If anybody's ever taught it about money, they're wrong. But it's about the life that we are gifted by God in Christ. The wicked servant is suspicious of the master. He's distrustful of God. And he refuses to live his life and have it bear fruit for him. He essentially refuses the preacher's exhortation to sow and to reap because he believed the ancient lie that God is a hard man and he wants to have things that you don't have and he's going to keep it from you. Brothers and sisters, that was a lie in Genesis 3 and that's a lie now. God is not withholding from you. God is opening his hand freely. If you're in Christ, he has called you to himself with open arms And now he gives to you freely of his spirit and empowers you so that you might live your life fruitfully for the sake of the gospel. He calls us to live in view of a reality that is greater than more than we could ever imagine in this life. More fruitful, more wonderful, more blessed, more desirous than anything that we could have ever hoped for. Have you lived a life that is believed that God is a hard man? And as a result of that, 
You're doing nothing for God right now. Repent if you're a believer. And be reminded of the heavenly vision that we have here. God is generous with what is his. And he puts people over much who are faithful right where they are. In the end, Tim turns Charlotte down, realizing that he's in love with Mary. He proposes, they marry, and then they have a daughter, and they name her Posey. Eventually, Tim's father tells him to live each day twice in order to be truly happy. First, with all that every day has, with all of every day's tensions and worries, but the second time, noticing how sweet the world can be, And Tim at first does this and he follows his father's advice. He lives the day and then he goes back in time and he lives the day again. He lives with the tensions and he goes back and then he just lives with all the sweetnesses and absurdities of life. But then he comes to realize that it's actually better to just live each day once. There's no way to really live a life twice. Not living out of regret from what we wish we would have done or living out of fear of what we hope would have happened. Rather, living life that is right where we are, just like it comes to us in all of the random difficulties and providences of life. Brothers and sisters, some of you have lived out of regret of the past, and everything you're doing now is trying to disprove something to yourself about what happened in the past, and you're just trying to overcome that, and you can't get far enough away from it. And some of you are terrified about the future. You're so afraid of the future that you're not living right now, and both of those realities Miss out on the present, what God has given to us today, which is why Jesus' words are so refreshing to us when we're anxious. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Rather, we are to bear fruit for the kingdom now. Similarly, the preacher's bankrupt quest has not corrupted his confidence in God Rather, his lack of control has caused him to throw it all down and make himself dependent upon God. Believer, this is for you. Are you living a life that is dependent upon God even when there's uncertainty in the future? An unbeliever, can you live a life of hope for the future? You can't apart from Christ. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. He will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We ask that you would help us, especially in texts like this that are often confusing and hard to understand. Lord, we pray as we leave here today that we would take action, that we would do good to others, that we would give freely, that we would live, that we would put forth effort, that we would do wonderful things and great things for the kingdom by trusting in our sovereign, faithful Savior who loved us more than we could have ever have hoped. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would be quick to tell other people about him. And Father, for those of us today who hear all of this exhortation to give, to live, to put forth effort, but have no hope for tomorrow because we have no hope in Christ, we ask God that your word would break upon them now and that you would cause them to find somebody today and ask them, tell me more about the Savior who lives, the Savior who forgives, the Savior who will come again for the people that he loves. Amen.